0: Our scripture reading today um, comes from the book of Romans uh, chapter 3 verses 21 through 26 Uh, you can follow along in your bulletins or electronic devices or even actual Bibles if you have those with you Um, we'll start in verse 21 but now the righteousness of God has manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus This is the word of the Lord.
1: So November 30th, 2014 was a pretty big day in collegiate athletics. Happened to be the 78th meeting of Auburn versus Alabama on the football field. Alabama, if you'll remember, came into the game undefeated and ranked number one in the country. And while Auburn only had one loss that particular year, they still were a a 10-point underdog to Alabama. So it was the stage was set for a great game and what for many people consider one of the greatest endings to a football game ever. Auburn, of course, had to claw their way back in the fourth quarter in order to tie the whole game at 28-28 with only 32 seconds left in the game. But let's be honest, this is Bama. That is plenty of time for Saban to drive the team down the field and kick a winning field goal. Well, Saban after arguing you know, vociferously to get one more second back on the clock, was able to win one more attempt for his kicker to try a 57-yard field goal. Why not try, he thought. Well, the kick was well short, but defensive back and now uh, official uh, Auburn deity, Chris Davis, fielded the ball in the back of the end zone and started running out. And of course, against all odds, the guy scurries down the field, barely avoids stepping out of bounds and into the end zone to win the game. At that very moment, every Auburn fan's soul left their bodies and they were transported into the seventh heaven of rapturous intoxication. And from then on, we all have to listen to what we know now as the Kick Six. Now, I'm assuming from your laughter you remember that story. What you may not realize, though, is what Auburn's reaction was to that momentous event because they were absolutely obsessed. I would encourage you to Google a little quick search for Kick Six explanation. Like there's dozens and dozens of pages of hits. Not only that, I found that someone had actually made a comic book commemorating Chris Davis's run. It was amazing, sort of thing. I even found some Kick Six coffee cups that have like um, football fields on them that show and trace Chris Davis's path down the field. Turns out, also, when the last time I checked, you can get a Chris Davis autographed uh, Sports Illustrated cover uh, for just under a thousand dollars. A bargain at any price. What's my point? My point is is to notice what it is that human beings do with good news. I would submit to you that the moment that you get legitimately good news, it's not just that you memorialize it. You begin to study it. You begin to write about it. You begin to analyze it to death. You you turn it over a thousand times in your minds. I can't count how many times I've actually told people about. Old Miss beating Alabama in 2014. We get fixated on those things. You know something is good news when you can't stop looking at it. Well, our text this morning is just that kind of good news. And we know that because for the last couple of millennia, theologians have poured over every single detail, every nuance in these verses. And it really shouldn't be too hard to figure out why. Because Paul, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18 has just unloaded for us 64 verses of horribly bad news. He swept paganism up into condemnation for all of their slavish addiction to idols, losing the very control they thought they were getting by serving them. He then turns around and cancels all of the religious people for their high mindedness and their hypocrisy, doing the very things that they judge other people for doing. And then he sums it all up at the beginning of chapter 3 with this sweeping denunciation of every living soul under God. And then he gets to verse 21. And Paul pauses and gives this very simple but pregnant phrase, but God. In other words, he's saying this is where things change. This is where it turns. He's still dealing with this question that he introduced back in chapter one, verse 17, about the righteousness of God. Remember we talked about that? And we said that righteousness there doesn't mean righteousness as a quality of God's character, rather a sort of people's relationship and standing before him, or the way we put it, how to be on God's good side. And so what he does is he begins to talk about it in these extremely technical terms in verses 24 and 25. All of them represent this deep analysis of just how God has pulled up salvation for his people. And it's such good news that I think it warrants our obsession. (laughs) Every bit as much as an Auburn's fan's love of a kick six is. So I'm going to look at these three words this morning. I want to see the definition of justification, of redemption, and then a word called propitiation. What do these mean? Let's dive into it. First of all, justification. Follow Paul's argument. He says there is a newly revealed way of being righteous before God, and it's new because it's received by faith. Hold that thought. We're going to get back to that in about three weeks. Then he reiterates his argument in verse 23 about the problem of human sin, namely that all are condemned. And then in verse 24 is where the magic word is and are justified by his grace. Now, What Paul means by that word is really at the heart of the good news. Because what he's saying is, is at that moment, God makes a declaration like a judge would in front of a jury and in front of a a, a defendant that he says, you are not guilty. That's what justification is. And Protestant reformer Martin Luther would say, this is the doctrine upon which the, the, the pillar of the church, if you don't have it, the whole church falls by it. Nothing is more important than this. And so in unpacking it, Luther went out of his way to try to explain that justification is not something that is done in you, but rather it's something done about you. What's the difference? Well, bear with me with an illustration. Imagine that I hear you say something that I disagree with, and I look at you and I say, you know what? Justify that statement. What am I saying? I'm not asking you to change the statement What I'm saying is, change how it is that I look at what you said. Help me to accept what it is that you're saying is true. Change the way that where I stand with what you just said. That's what Paul means here. And so Luther was trying to say that when God comes in and he begins the work of change, he does not do so by making us righteous. That is not how he does it. He begins by declaring us, legally speaking, to be so. In other words, he doesn't change us. He changes his relationship to us. He changes our standing towards him. He changes the way that he looks at us or considers us. Now look, right away, you come up against all kinds of confusion that God's people have when they're trying to wrap their mind around what the faith is. Early on, you have someone who goes through some kind of season in life where they think to themselves, it's time for a change. Maybe they make a commitment. Maybe they come back to church. They make a new pledge that from now on, I'm going to follow God. But of course, suddenly they find help that either that resolve that they had to come and make a change in life was really not as strong as they thought it was. Or maybe those old sins and addictions were just stronger than they thought. But before too long, they start to feel on the outs with God again. They, they feel the old guilty threats pressing in on them. They'll say things like, you know, I've I just kind of gotten away from God. But what Paul is saying is, is that when God comes first to work on you, to work in you, he doesn't do anything in you until he does something about you. That is, he says, I have to begin before we ever talk about what it is that's plaguing you on the inside I have to begin with acceptance. I've got to clear away this fog of guilt between you and me so that we can move forward with this relationship. But it's only then that he starts to work in you on what it is that's dividing the two of you personally. Now, but here's the problem. (laughs) Religious people are almost always trying to reverse that process. What we're trying to do, and in a weird way, it's almost what we want to do, we're trying to get ourselves cleaned up before we'll entertain the thought that we can finally know God. That is, we want our justification based upon what we did that week. We want it based upon how well we did with our Christian devotion and discipline, on, on, on our reputation that we've having built, that we've built, on having our lives totally together. But what I've been trying to say is that is the opposite of Christianity, because it basically turns Christianity into just another pathway to God up the mountain that we're all headed towards, but that makes it like every other world religion. Think of it in this way. The difference is between the job of a surgeon and a judge. What does a surgeon do? A surgeon has to open you up and get to the problem on the inside. But a judge, what does he do? He delivers a verdict about you and considers you right in the eyes of the state or before the law or wrong, as the case may be. And I know Christians who for their entire lifetimes have been languishing, wanting so much for, for salvation to be surgery and not a verdict. But they don't know that surgery can't begin until the judge has cleared you and cleared and created access for you. That has to be first. It's fundamental. Consider it this way. Every commentator that I read mentioned the fact That justification is so much more than forgiveness. We talk that way, right? What we need is forgiveness. If only we could be forgiven. I just need to know I'm forgiven. And it's wonderful to know you're forgiven. But when you really look at that, look at this, it's not enough, is it? I mean, if it's true that this salvation is nothing more than I'm forgiven, then actually, ultimately speaking, my salvation is still on my shoulders. Why? Well, look, if I'm forgiven for what I've done in the past, that's fine. But what about what I do in the future? When I was growing up, salvation was nothing more than God saying, well, okay. I mean, I'll forgive you. But, uh, you know, from now on, you better get your act together. From here on out, it better change. But that is not what justification is. It's not less than forgiveness and pardon, but it's so much more. Because if all I have is pardon, then I can be forgiven, but then I'm right back on probation. But Luther would go on to say that justification takes you, gets rid of that idea of probation. It puts you beyond the ability to be on probation. How? By clothing you in the righteousness of Christ. A number of years ago, I was driving across campus heading to the student union and I got behind a car that was going very slowly, so slow. And as my family will tell you, I suffer from road rage. So I began to fume, I can feel my temperature rising. I'm sure I probably said a lot of awful things about that person in the car in front of me, until they pulled off in the offices that are right underneath where the ROTC offices were, and I landed in the union. But of course I had one last chance, right? So I decided I would spin around and give one more glaring look at this you know, goofball who was driving that car and all of a sudden out of the car stepped a man, very tall man in full military dress and suddenly everything changed. Here's why. I've always been a little bit in awe of career military folk. I've got friends and families who have served. uh, War movies freak me out. The people's willingness to sacrifice in that particular way. And I'm telling you that when I saw how that man was clothed, my anger instantly changed to respect and awe. This is exactly what justification is picturing. Because my friend's behavior, let's face it, was still irritating to me, but the way in which I viewed him changed. Why? Because of the way he was dressed. So you see what Paul is saying? Paul is saying in a flash moment, God clothes you in something that when he sees it, it fills his heart with awe. It fills his heart with delight and with joy and with pride. We spend so much time fixated on what it looks like for me (laughs) to approach God and how I'm feeling and how I'm looking at him. But we rarely consider how the gospel spends so much time in looking how it is that he views me because we don't understand justification. And it's such a lovely sight what God sees in us, in Christ, that all of our past and future aggravations with him are suddenly cast in an entirely new light. That's justification. He sees you in an entirely different way. As a matter of fact, he sees you the way in which he sees his only son. How much does the father love the son? I don't know, but that's how much justification puts us in the place of where Jesus is heart of justification is good news. But secondly, though, Paul has another word for us when he uses the word redemption. Redemption. Look at the second half of verse four. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's two sides to that. Take the first one. Look, in the same way that the word justification is a legal word for the law court, redemption is a commercial word. One that you would have heard in the marketplace In the Old Testament, it's used to talk about slaves that were purchased with the purpose of setting them free eventually. So look, Paul's point is pretty obvious. Humankind is trapped and enslaved by their sin. There's that theme of helplessness coming back again, by the way. So that the whole inertia of salvation is trying to get me to own the fact that I am unable to liberate myself. That is, someone has to come and buy me back to rescue me. It's the reason why I think Jesus in Mark 10 45 says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to do what? To give his life as a ransom, a redemption for many. What's Jesus talking about? That ransom is something he's going to buy us back. So redemption is a beautiful and wonderful word. But notice the second thing Paul says, this redemption, this coming is quote in Christ Jesus. Now look, dig through the cobwebs of your mind back to our study in Acts last fall when we learned a little bit about this phrase, did we not? Especially when Paul is converted. His name is Saul before he became Paul. But in Acts chapter nine, he sees this great light that knocks him down and it says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's like, I don't I'm not persecuting you at all. And Jesus is like, yes you are because you're going after my people. And to go after my people is the same as going after me because my relationship to my people is so near and so intimate and so personal that what may be said to be true of them in all of their sin became true of me on the cross so that what became true of me on the cross could be true of them. Why? Because they are in me. I am in union with them. They are near to me. And on the basis of that great exchange, what the theologians call imputation, I impute my sin to Jesus, he imputes his righteousness to me. We suddenly realize we are connected now. We are joined. We have an access to Jesus in the spirit that we never could have imagined before. And Paul, Paul, Paul makes it the basis for the entire rest part of his ministry. How many times does he say, in Christ Jesus, in him, in Christ? So when you put these two terms together, you see Paul is saying that we have been bought back, set free from bondage as a function of our nearness to Jesus. Did you catch that? Our intimacy with Jesus and this good news is that the closer that I get to him, the more of my life is rescued by him. I hope you realize that Hollywood loves redemption stories. Even if they hate our faith, they love redemption stories. And I don't know one that's any better than the greatest sports movie ever filmed, Hoosiers. Fantastic movie that talks about this guy named Coach Dale, a broken down uh, Indiana coach who finally finds his way back to a small little Indiana high school to coach again. But with his spotty pass, he needs his good friend to look at him and say, hey, your slate is clean here. And on the basis of that, with that pronouncement, Coach Dale begins to redeem everybody who gets close to him. Now look, if you haven't seen the movie, it's your own fault, okay? It's 30 years old for Pete's sakes. But if you think about that movie, everybody gets something new in Hoosiers, do they not? You got Everett, Shooter's son, he gets a new dad. At the beginning of the movie, he looks and says, my dad doesn't deserve a second chance. But by the end of the movie, He believes he's going to get better. The great Jimmy Chitwood also gets something. He gets freed up from the pressure of performance that's been killing him. At the beginning of the movie, Coach Dale says, look, you've got a special talent, a gift. Not the schools, not the townspeople's, not the team's, not Myra Fleener's, and not mine. It's yours to do with what you choose. And because that's what I believe, I can tell you this. I don't care whether you play on the team or not. And all of a sudden, Jimmy is freed up to play basketball because the pressure's off of him. That's the secret of his success. You got little Ollie, who finally gets to be the hero instead of being half a man in the eyes of his teammates. Strap, of course, gets in the big game and scores points to put his faith into practice rather than sitting on the bench just praying for his life to get better. And, of course, there's Raid, who learns to listen to his coach and trust him. the reason why you know is because he gets a fight to defend him at the big Cedar Knob game. And I love the last scene of that movie because you get to see the entire crowd after the big victory at the state championship. And of course, the director knew enough to put it all in slow motion because everybody's rejoicing and singing. This background is, that background music is permanently burned on all of our brains as definitive redemption music, isn't it? Why? Because Coach Dale is a Christ figure. If you stay in his orbit... If you got near to him, you got stuff back. Is this not what Jesus is saying in John chapter 15 when he says, abide in me? If you don't abide in me, you'll never produce fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, if you will come close to me and draw near to me because of the acceptance that I've given you, I will begin to redeem all of the enslaved parts of your life in all of its places. Redemption in Christ Jesus, he says. Man, I wish we had more time for that. But thirdly and finally, we get this big word, propitiation. That's a weird one, we don't ever use this one. Because you need to be asking at this point, all right, all that sounds good and everything, but how can this be? Well, look at verses 24 and 25. Paul explains how it's possible because he says, in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. All right, what does that mean? Well, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago but we usually lose people at this point. If I'm going to lose you, it's going to be right on this word. And the Greek word is hilasterion. So you have translated propitiation because you want to know what it means? The word literally translated in the best translation means to turn away and appease anger. Now here's where I've stepped into a mess with budding Oxford socialites. There's two things. There's a part of me that people immediately are kind of like, are we still talking about anger? I think for a lot of people, one of the reasons the people who have the most problem with this are the people who don't have children yet. Here's the reason why. Because we listen to things like this, we're like, "Well, please, are we still talking about a God of anger? I mean, I believe in a God of love. There's no wrath to be averted in salvation. Salvation is just accepting his unconditional love towards us. Now, love and anger. Think about that. Love and anger. In the modern mind, they feel like they're mutually exclusive, don't they? But that's not true. It's actually kind of naive. I would argue you really can't love someone unless you're actually capable at getting really angry at something that might separate you from your beloved. I, I, I know parents who have, who have absolutely walked through hell and back with their children through all manner of addiction and embarrassment And disappointment and regret and heartache, livid at every single turn. Why? Because they love their children. Because in your children you begin to see what sin destroys and it's by definition the most supremely loving thing you can do to hate the destruction of what you love. So no, love and anger are not incompatible in God's mind any more than he loves to see something destroy something that he, that he, that he adores, his own image. One, quote, one author put it this way, anger isn't the opposite of love, hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. But secondly, like we said before, I, what I've been trying to say this whole time is that if you will allow the idea of God's anger to sort of settle into your soul, what I think you'll find is a capacity to rejoice that you might not have had before. Because notice, God's anger was diverted because of Jesus' blood shedding. Jesus' blood was exchanged for something. Now, once again, if I didn't lose you on the wrath one, I guarantee I lost you on this one. Because and once again, we find that this is at odds with thinking. I've heard people look at me and say, it is sheer and utter barbarism to suggest that somehow a man's brutal death 2,000 years ago somehow keeps God from being angry with me. Are we really still there? Surely we're beyond this kind of thinking. I, I, we actually have to be warned. There are some, even from within our own Bible-believing evangelical camp, that are moving further and further away from this because they're so off put by it. But look, my point this morning is to simply say that that objection is only accurate if it was a mere man who died 2000 years ago. If it was a mere man, then yes, there's no connection between some weird thing that happened 2000 years ago now. But if it was God in the flesh, But if it was a picture that was not God as some sort of cosmic Shylock just waiting to demand this pound of flesh. And realize instead what it is, is it's God on the cross saying, I am going in this moment to turn the gun on myself. It was a supreme act of ennobling and encouraging redemption for his people. He propitiated, he diverted God's wrath because God took the pain himself. And what's interesting about this, whenever people see this in popular culture, which I know a lot, some of you don't like that quote from pop culture, I'm sorry, but the world is talking about this. That helps us, it's called a point of contact. But oftentimes in popular culture, you will get people who will see this redemption and they're not off put by it. The nearest that I could remember happened in 1997, 25 years ago, there was a movie that came out, it was nominated for best picture was called Life is Beautiful. It's an Italian film featured a famous Italian actor, Roberto Benigni, who plays a father with a young little three or four year old son who gets sent into a concentration camp. But Benigno's Benigno's character is a, a guy named Guido. Guido decides he wants to do everything that he can to shield this little boy from the horrors of the concentration camp and the war. So he begins to turn life in the concentration camp into a game. All the things that happen are just a game. It's a play, and the little boy's believing it because he just keeps his eyes on his father. But of course, the crushing nature of the movie comes at the end, when all of a sudden the advancing armies cause the Nazis to decide they're going to execute all the older men in the camp, and you have this incredible scene where Benny, Benny's character is walking off to face the firing squad. He looks back over his shoulder at the eyes of his son, and there's such a sad face. But at the same time, there's a nobility to his face because he knows what he's doing is right and faces his own execution. Now, here's what's crazy. Did anybody walk out of that movie and think, why in the world would we ever want to talk about some man giving his life for his son? No, we cried at it. I cried at it. We all wept over it. Why? Because there is something beautiful in the supreme act of love where the God of the universe comes, looks, looks at us from across the way with sad eyes saying, this is the only way. This is the only way, but it's worth it. It's worth it because what is, what is going to be won for you on the other side. We're going to look more into that in two weeks about exactly how that unpacks itself. But don't you see, this is the gym. This is the gym. It's almost like Paul has a diamond, and you turn it and all of a sudden justification comes up. <laughs> you turn it a little bit more and redemption comes up in all of its beauty. You turn it a little more and suddenly blood sacrifice becomes beautiful to you. That's what we do with good news. We take it out, we look at it, we examine it, we dig deep theological wells so we can keep drawing from it. That's what we do with good news. That's what we do with that here. Would to God that we would become known as a church where there was good news there. I don't know what that church is about, but they sure talk about grace a lot. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you've got to show us that before we are able to exemplify that well. Would you show us that, Father? Many of us are in that same spot. We thought we needed to get ourselves cleaned up before we came in here. We were a little nervous to pray because of what we did this week. All of that screaming that we don't believe, we don't believe that you have opened up the doors, that you have one acceptance for us in Christ, that you do something about us before you do something in us, that you're slowly but surely buying back all of those pieces of our lives the nearer we are to you so, Father, keep us focused on Jesus' blood and his righteousness, even as we sing, as we sing to, to Father, not just to you, because we're getting ready to sing to ourselves. Arise, get up, my soul, and cling to the bleeding sacrifice. Would you give us that grace this morning? For We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.